Are you satisfied with your understanding of sustainability? If not, like me, imagine a journey together, a pluralistic one, with innovators, startup, academia, NGO, all together looking for solution to the greatest challenge of our time. I'm Samuel Etini, and this is the Sustainability Journey. We have now arrived to episode eight, and today we will talk about an odd topic, how to establish a ESG corporate policy. You know, now it is time to walk the talk. We will do it today with an expat from the prestigious farm, Ags Abar and Reed, the managing partner of the Paris office, Brian Silaman. Thank you, Brian, for being here. Hello, my pleasure. It's great to be with you. You have a vast experience. Uh, you have been with the Security and Exchange Commission and now you are in the law firm. Can you talk about a bit your background as a start? As you mentioned, I am a lawyer. I did start my career in the U.S. with the Securities and Exchange Commission. I was in the Division of Enforcement. So that's the division that's responsible for conducting investigations and, and bringing prosecutions against companies if they're engaged in fraud. Uh, or misconduct. And I spent a couple of years there. I started working there on corruption-related issues. And that really took my career in that direction. Uh, After spending a few years there, I I joined the law firm of Hughes, Hubbard & Reed, where I am still working today. I was first working out of our Washington, D.C. office. And a few years back, we had the opportunity to be engaged by a French company that was facing some corruption issues. So I came over to Paris for what I thought was going to be a couple of weeks or maybe a few months. And over 10 years have passed living and working in Paris helping companies with a range of compliance-related issues. Part of those uh, skills and part of that expertise and experience is, um, is relevant to the development of ESG and sustainability practices, which we're seeing a lot more attention on these days. That is a very diverse and rich experience. Your lessons and your insights will be extremely valuable for sure. And then I loved you stay for a couple of months and then here came sometimes life. Is there. Exactly. You have uh, written extensively on ESG and how also how to do practically, how to establish a corporate policy. Which are your advice for a company that is at the present moment want to do it? What really prompted uh, myself and a, a colleague or two at the firm who's also very interested in this area to, to write about this is we saw parallels between the development of corporate compliance policy or corporate compliance program and what companies are now trying to do in the ESG space. And to get into maybe a little more detail on that, you know, when we're helping a company that's developing a, a compliance program, an anti-corruption program, it goes through various phases and various there are various elements to it that we consider to be necessary for that program to be successful. And I think while there's not a sort of copy and paste solution, some of those are very relevant to the development of an ESG policy or an ESG program. Things like the tone from the top. You know, what is the tone that's being set by senior management, by the board of directors? Are they really embracing this compliance program or in this case, an ESG program? And how are they doing it? How are they communicating about it? Then having, you know, relevant people involved in the process, whether that's a task force comprised of compliance, legal, health and safety, human resources personnel, 
sustainability personnel, if they're existing at the company, having those individuals, you know, in the room together, building up that that policy or that procedure um, to making sure it, it's fit for purpose for the organization. And then, you know, communicating about it, training people on it, and then establishing metrics to measure whether it's working in practice. So all of those, uh, to name a few, are elements that we consider necessary from a compliance perspective, and I think translate into this um, this increased attention on ESG issues as well. That is extremely interesting. You mentioned a critical point, the standards. There is a lot of debates about standard now. How do you measure? Because we know that whatever gets measured is what, of course, it gets done. <laughs> so what is the critical part? You put your your finger on, I think, the, the million-dollar question, and it's one that is without an easy answer at this point um, because the, the reality is that the standards are developing almost each and every day. You have, I would say, if I take two examples, both of which are, are areas where I've worked, the U.S. and the EU, the situation is, is quite different. The EU, in this respect, is, is more advanced than the U.S. They've had a non-financial reporting directive issued going back to 2014, which required the reporting, uh, the the disclosure of certain non-financial material issues, uh, environmental, human rights issues, corruption-related issues for large organizations, large corporates. That directive and those standards are under evaluation. They've been considered to be of marginal success so far. And so the EU is currently looking at revamping those and developing a corporate sustainability reporting directive, which would be more rigorous and would also apply to more companies within the EU. And on top of that, you also have disclosure obligations that are being issued um, specific to financial market participants, to asset managers to banks and to other financial institutions that are issuing products that are labeled as sustainable to make sure, one, that they're disclosing what the diligence that they've conducted was to to assess their sustainability risks and also to validate the sustainable nature of those products. And sort of sitting on top of all, all of that in the EU is what's known as the EU taxonomy which is a a technical set of criteria that are really intended to eliminate or at least mitigate the risk of greenwashing. The issue of companies or financial institutions saying that something is sustainable when in fact it, it really may not be. And so the taxonomy establishes these rather detailed, rigorous criteria along six different categories, or it will establish them along six different categories. So far, they've issued um, criteria for two of the categories, climate change mitigation and climate change adaptation. And they will, in the future, release criteria for sustainable use uh, and protection of water and marine resources, transition to a circular economy, uh, pollution prevention and control, and the protection and restoration of biodiversity and ecosystems. So the EU is is actively developing and issuing legislation and guidance on its standards. And in that respect, you know, companies are already starting to have to, um, to comply with these. In the U.S., the, the situation is a bit more in flux, I would say. 
the Securities and Exchange Commission, so my former my former employer, had issued guidance on disclosing material risks relating to climate change and certain environmental risks all the way back in 2010. But the guidance didn't really have much of an effect on what companies were doing in practice. To, to maybe take a, a brief step back, in the U.S., the disclosure regime is, generally speaking, driven by the concept of materiality. So if an, an event is considered material to a company, then the company is required by SEC regulations to disclose information about that event. What does materiality mean? It's essentially defined as what a reasonable investor would consider important in making an investment decision. So if your CEO is fired or your CFO is fired or there's a, a large fraud that's uh, identified, those would be considered material events. And so the guidance in 2010 said, well, if you consider that the impact of climate change could have a material effect on your financial performance, then you have to disclose it. If certain climate change legislation could have a material impact on your, your activities, you have to disclose it. If there's physical damage from climate events to your assets, you have to disclose those. So there has been something that has existed, but it's not been considered to be very effective. And so the, the SEC has been looking at a wide range of, of initiatives. They have developed uh, an ESG task force within the Division of Enforcement to look at potentially fraudulent statements that people are making about their sustainability efforts. They have appointed a senior policy advisor on ESG, and the, the former acting chair of the SEC um, has directed the Division of Corporation Finance to look at how they can improve the guidance from 2010, and they're seeking public comment on it right now. So I suspect that there will be some additional regulation and, and at the very least disclosure requirements coming out of the SEC sometime in the not too distant future. Thank you for your comprehensive case study and the differences between the two giants no, in the economy. Such a different of approach, one that is more, let us say, from the cultural point of view of the United States, also driven by the industry and also, you know, the more say voluntary and the other more regulated. Which one is working better? And do you think we can, let us say, force a bit the industry to become compliant and to take seriously the issue of ESG? It's a really good question. And I think that it's, you know, it's probably too early to say which of the two approaches will be more successful. You know, at some point, there may even be some sort of consolidation of those approaches. I, I think that's probably years away if, if it ha ever happens. We'll more likely probably see as a system similar to the accounting principles where you have the U.S. GAAP, you know, generally accepted accounting principles, and then you have IFRS, which applies to a lot of the rest of the world. And companies that you know are big enough and have to comply with both just figure out a way to do those in a in sort of gap analysis. But I think you know it, it will be quite interesting to see which one is more successful. I would say at this point, what's really driving a lot of the the change is actually the private sector. And certainly the regulations are an important piece, and they will be, especially if they're coupled with enforcement you know, important encouragement for companies and deterrence for companies to do the, the wrong thing or say the wrong thing. But the private sector 
has really been driving a lot of this discussion and a lot of the change, I would say. You have the most notable example probably being BlackRock and the famous letter from Larry Fink going back two years ago, I think now, where he said quite clearly that climate risk is investment risk. And we as BlackRock, the largest asset manager in the world, we are going to be looking more closely at what the companies that we invest in are doing to address ESG risk and climate risk even more specifically. And we will be voting against directors that don't take climate change seriously or that don't are speaking out against climate change or climate initiatives. Now, BlackRock has re- received some of its own criticism for perhaps being inconsistent on some of its positions, but certainly, you know, broadly speaking, their statements were got a lot of attention within Wall Street. And you see not just them, but State Street, Vanguard, a lot of the major uh, asset managers making similar, not just statements, but really holding companies to account and requiring them to demonstrate what they're doing to address ESG. And so the private sector has been a big force of change in this. And I think you'll con- continue to see that as funds are flowing you know, more and more into sustainable ventures, into uh, renewable energy, into clean energy. You know, that's, that's driving a lot of what companies are doing as well, putting the regulation aside. That is very interesting, Brian. Again, an example where the private sector is taking the leads and government is, again, taken by surprise and trying to, to close the gap. From your experience, you know, we are reading every day you open the Financial Times, you open the, the, the newspaper, there is one company pledging, we go to zero neutrality, we want, we want to create a new policy, we were becoming like ESG and... From the hype of the press, what is the reality on the ground? I think the reality on the ground is that there's still a lot of work to do. It's one thing to make a pledge of being carbon neutral or net zero or however you want to frame it by 2050 or you know put in, insert whatever date you like. It's another thing, I think, to then demonstrate what the specific steps you're taking to really achieve that are. And that's where regulation will be important, I think. And again, enforcement will be important if companies are saying things that are untrue or are misrepresenting the, the results of their testing or the metrics that they're using. Those will certainly be, be key, but you also have a lot of private sector initiatives and organizations like the sciencebasedtargets.org and series, uh, C-E-R-E-S, that are very focused on you know, trying to develop metrics and trying to really look at the details of what companies are saying and what they're doing. And if they're saying one thing, but they are doing different things than pointing that out. You know, if they're saying we want to be carbon neutral, but they are paying lobbyists that are, you know, supporting uh, legislation that makes that a difficult thing to achieve in the U.S. or elsewhere, then, you know, pointing out those discrepancies and, and trying to hold them to account. When you spoke and you say the word enforcement, especially giving your experience and your work, especially the Swedish Saints Commission and now in the law firm, which are the 
instruments, the tools that are at disposal of regulators and now to really enforce and really take company accountable for their pledges and to walk the talk in a way. It depends a little bit on, of course, the jurisdiction and each country has its own enforcement mechanisms. One of the things that the EU taxonomy is attempting to do is provide consistency and really you know, make companies measure and disclose how they're measuring their efforts in one of those six sustainability categories. In France, you have some mechanisms for private sector uh, NGOs and citizens to bring action against companies, private private actions against companies for environmental related offenses. And the French law just expanded the settlement tool that exists for corruption related offenses to also include environmental offenses. So that's something that there hasn't been much done yet because it's very, very new, but there have been attempts already to hold some companies responsible for environmental issues by NGOs. And I think you'll continue to see that in France. In the US, uh, you still come back, at least for now on the SEC side, to whether a company has made a material misstatement, essentially. And so if they say that, you know, the risks associated with their their activities are not affected by climate change or make some you know broad material misstatement there could be a fraud action brought against them you could also see instances where individuals are raising funds to invest in clean or renewable projects when in fact they're they're not doing that or they're either siphoning the money elsewhere or just investing differently and so that could be another instance where you see a sort of fraud type action but until we have some more specific guidance, I think, from the SEC, it'll be the more egregious cases where people are really making material misstatements as opposed to just not providing enough information to the market. That aspect, I think, will still be driven by the private sector for a little while. Interesting. I think also the pressure maybe for consumers and the market can add some, but still not in the absolutely legal side. That takes me to the next question, actually, what you said. Which are the critical limitations to establish ESG corporate policy? Which in your practice you have seen there are these uh, limitations? Some of it, you know, is different based on whether you're talking about the E or the S or the G. You know, from an environmental perspective, you know, there's been a lot more research. There's a lot more technical capabilities now than there were in terms of detail on the long-term effects of climate change coming from satellites, from a lot more of the the detailed data that exists than did several years ago. But it's still, I would say, is a difficult thing to predict several years down the road what the effects of climate change could be when you're talking about specific assets or specific activities of a company. You may be able to say, generally speaking, that climate change will have this effect on this region. Uh, But does that mean that your factory that's located in that region will be specifically impacted or will be put out of use? And if so, for how long? And will that have a material effect on your company's activity. So there, it's still difficult, I think, from an asset, from a granular perspective to make those sort of predictions. And I think, you know, the disclosures that companies will make will probably build in 
hedge language that will give a range of possibilities and you know maybe talk about the the broader longer term impacts on the uh, climate change and how that's impacting their business generally speaking but that's one challenge and then when you get to the social piece the the s there are again different rules on what you're allowed to request and allowed to ask about in different countries so france for example you're not permitted to ask about race there can be voluntary disclosures but conducting a similar type of survey on that issue in france and some other countries in the eu may not be as easy uh, as it would be in other jurisdictions and so you have you know different laws and different rules surrounding those type of issues as well and then uh, certainly you know one of the big pieces of this is the labor regulations and those change pretty significantly among jurisdictions as well so how do you account for labor related issues and labor risks and especially if you're a large organization working in multiple jurisdictions so i think those are some of the practical risks that that come about and then on the governance side there's still a lot of discussion and i think there will be evolution on who should be governing this process is it a committee of the board uh, is it a newly formed committee of the board is it something that an existing committee of the board should expand their charter and take on. So, you know, the the answer may be different for different companies. I don't think there's one right answer, but the governance framework will also be something that will continue to evolve. Thank you, Brian. It's really a work in progress. And of course, to put all the pieces of the jigsaw together, that is where, you know, we will uh, also companies will manage. Because of course, if you just focus on one dimension, but you lose governance side or the social impact, of course, your action are in the red. Uh, since we are going towards the summary of the episode, which are the lessons learned? What do you want to leave for, for example, I'm a small company. How can I enact this? Which are the steps I can take really to become more compliant and also to make a step towards contributing to this challenge, that the challenge of sustainability, broadly spoken? I think there's a few lessons and a few things to take away. One is it's easy to get overwhelmed with how much is out there because there is, as you mentioned, there is almost every single day uh, a new article or a new discussion about standards, seem to be a new organization popping up that is focused on these issues, all of which are good things because I think the discussion needs to be to be out there and needs to continue. But it's easy to get overwhelmed and to use that as an excuse not to do something. Nothing's going to be perfect on day one. I think that's a key lesson that this is a process that will take years. And really, if it's done correctly, we'll we'll never really stop because you're always going to have to continually look at what you're doing and assess whether it's working uh, in practice. So I would say, you know, don't let the, the perfect be the enemy of the good. Try to sit down form a committee, if that makes sense for your organization, and talk about what are the issues that are most relevant to us as a company when we look at the E, the S, and the G. There's some great free resources. You know, the TCFD, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, has a, a framework that a lot of companies use to help guide that process. And all of that, you know, is free to download. Uh, and then there are the more specific standards of the SASB GRI and then the EU and the US standards we've talked about, but there's a lot of free resources out there. I've mentioned already Series, which is a great organization that puts out a lot of really useful literature. 
and material on how boards or how management can address these issues. So just getting started, I think, is a key step. And then, you know, being willing to evolve and learn from the mistakes or the lessons that you're hearing from your stakeholders is also critical. That is incredibly interesting, a very useful and practical piece of advice, a sort of iteration process, let me summarize it, towards the establishment of a policy that is a daunting task, but I think with the practical advice you gave us, it's really important. Maybe I can ask you a last call for action because it's really often overlooked, the the compliance, but it's the most critical part, I think, because without it, we will be very difficult to achieve the results. Absolutely. I think it's important to take from multiple voices and listen to multiple voices within the organization. You know, if done correctly, it's a process that is not just something that's decided at the top of the organization, imposed on everyone. It's really built also from the ground up. And so having perspectives of people in different activities, different departments, different functions, will end up making your program more successful and more relevant to you as a company. You know, just because, you know, Walmart or or Coca-Cola or Nike or, you know, name your large company does one thing doesn't mean that that's what you should do as a company. I think it's important that, you know, you understand who you are, the challenges you're facing, and then try to, to address those. And, and certainly, you know, there are opportunities to comment on some of the regulatory evolutions that are ongoing. So the SEC, as I mentioned, is in its reflection mode and has uh, the opportunity for individuals to make public comments on those. And so, you know, for some companies that may make sense to issue a comment letter and provide some perspective on what they feel the disclosure requirements should be. There's similar ways to make your voices heard in the EU and in other jurisdictions. And, And again, some of these private sector NGOs and, and nonprofit organizations are really excellent as well in terms of networking and sharing similar perspectives and stories with, with others. So I would encourage people to look at those. Some of them are industry specific and some are, are general. So there's a lot of great resources out there. Thank you, Brian. I think this is something really practical and useful for our listener. I am really happy and to, for your magistral lesson and your really good perspective of of this complex matter because it's you really gave us a good overview and very clear i really would like even to to book you again for another future episode for to see sure. how is evolving because you know you mentioned at the beginning that the security and state commission in this reflective mood the eu is issued two out of six so maybe in a couple of months, we'll, we'll see something more and we will we'll discuss you know, the evolution of this framework. With pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you, eh, Brian. I'm really happy and it was an honor to have you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Great fun. Are you better off after this wonderful episode? In the next one, we will go to India to see a social entrepreneur working to transform lives of women at the rural level.